You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, politics editor for The Griot and associate professor of political science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of The Blackest Questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also going to learn a lot about Black history, past and present. So here's the way this works. We have five rounds of questions about us, Black history, the whole diaspora, current events, everything. With each round, the questions will get a little bit tougher, and the guest has 15 seconds to get it right. If they answer the question correctly, they will receive one symbolic Black fist and hear this. If they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we'll still love them anyway. After the five questions, there will be a Black bonus question at the end just for fun. Our guest for this episode is Mark Lamont Hill. He's a professor, author, activist, and television personality. A Temple University alum, Dr. Hill also received his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. He's a proud Philly native and owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. That is one of my favorite bookshops. And you know I'm a Philly girl myself, so I am so excited to have you here, Mark. Thank you so much for joining The Blackest Questions. Oh, I am very, very happy to be here, although I gotta tell you, I'm a little nervous. No, don't be nervous, you know? Like, Philly people will never, ever, ever let you down. That's um, you know, it's, it's going to be great. So let's just jump right into it. Uh, I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> okay, let's get started. So the votes are in. A few months ago, Katanji Brown Jackson was the first black woman to become a Supreme Court justice. But in 1967, he was the first black Supreme Court justice. Who was he? I'm going to go with Thurgood Marshall. That's right. He was nominated by my favorite president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, and he served on the highest court in the land from 1967 through 1991. But before that, he graduated from Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, then Howard Law School, and he died January 24th, 1993, when he was 84 years old. So when you think of Thurgood Marshall, what sort of comes to your mind? Because, I mean, I remember growing up and just having like this reverence for him. You know, he seems so tall and like debonair, but so brilliant. Um, and that was before I even knew about his landmark civil rights cases. So when did you sort of first learn about Thurgood Marshall? I knew about him, you know, growing up in Philly, all the Lincoln people and you know, mm-hmm. of course Howard people uh, were claiming him. So I, I knew a decent amount uh, about him in that way. Um, I, when I started to learn about Brown versus Board of Education and, you know, how significant a role he played in 54 and, and in 55, I was... Um, I, I became even more sort of um, of an admirer of his, but I think I, I, you mentioned in '91 when he's when he leaves the court. I was thinking about how he could have just waited like another 18 months, mm-hmm. another 20 months mm-hmm. to Bill Clinton became president, and then we wouldn't have Clarence Thomas. Right. So I love me some Thurgood Marshall, but I, sometimes I, I he, he was the first. Justice, I wish, could have hung on a little longer or left a little bit earlier. You know, and I, I understand he couldn't, he would have had to leave in the Carter administration, you know, so I understood why he was hanging on. Like, maybe he thought George H.W. Bush was going to win re-election, so he's like, I, I can't wait anymore. He obviously passed. But if I was him, and I couldn't be, I'm not that smart, I I, I would have hung on with, with Bush and Reagan as presidents. I would have just hung on, I would have died in that seat. Right. But I think you make a really interesting point, though, because there is this incumbency advantage. And George H.W. Bush, by and large, was, you know, people were like, oh, he's not that bad. I mean, you know, he 
he made a fatal flaw where he promised not to raise taxes, and he had to for the good of the nation at the time. And so all of a sudden we see this this young upstart with a, a rap sheet of scandals coming out of nowhere from Arkansas. So yeah, I'm sure Thurgood Marshall was like, I can't hang on for another five years, basically. Um, right. But then he's sort of like the anti-RBG, where it's like, I feel like, you know, he left too early where RBG. I'm like, hey, sis. <laughs> right. Um, you knew that the times were right. getting tough. Like, you didn't want to retire and spend some time with your grandkids? Right. She had an exit strategy. She could have left. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and didn't. And, 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 and some of that was about the desire to wait for Hillary initially, yes. right? I mean, was, was that the idea? Yes. And I'm like, we don't have that luxury. No. We don't have that luxury. The stakes are too high. You got to go when it's time to go. Absolutely. But now we have Katanji Brown-Jackson, who is, you know, as we've seen time and time again, justices keep getting appointed at, at younger and younger ages so they can stay longer. What are you most excited about uh, in a Katanji Brown-Jackson court? <laughs> Even though she's most likely going to be in the minority in many opinions, but... Absolutely. I, for, for me, it's just the momentum. You know, uh, mm-hmm. she, well, two things. One, she, you know, she's a very smart jurist. Um, which I think is important. Um, I think that anyone would agree that she's thoughtful and careful, that she's well-read and and and, and well-trained. And um, when I watched her confirmation hearings, I was overwhelmed uh, and impressed um, by her, her poise and her responses. Um, because as she's talking, you could hear what she was thinking as a Black person. You could hear what she wanted to say. So oh, just listen, you know there's so many black women. We were her translators. Like, listen, exactly. ask me exactly. that question again. Keep asking <laughs> right. me that question. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's why I love Twitter, because I was I was watching black women translate for her, and it was mm-hmm. it was perfect. And um, so I appreciate that. But also, you know, again, a young left-leaning jur- jurist, I think, is significant right now, um, given everything that's going on in the world. And so I'm I'm not hopeful of any bad thing befalling anybody on the court. But if Clarence Thomas were to slip on a banana peel right now, you know what I mean? We, we'd have a, we'd have even more momentum if, if Joe Biden is able to uh, replace the next uh, the, or, or, or place a point rather is the next um, the next Supreme Court justice. Uh, and I, I like this idea of appointing people who are young and vibrant and mm-hmm. who will have a long time on the court. That means a lot to me. Well, I, I agree. The only thing is, it's like Brett Kavanaugh is young. Amy Coney Barrett's young. You know, it, it goes both ways, unfortunately. But I do think that, you know, if we could also get a court that looks a little more representative of the United States, you know, I always ask my students, like, do you think it's fair that nine people represent 330 million? <laughs> and, and the right. responses they get, you know, because so many of them don't see themselves represented in any capacity, um, not just descriptively, but even ideologically in, in some ways. Um, okay, so you ready? Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep it moving. I'm getting nervous. No, don't you be nervous. I was like, I, at least I got one. I was going in here like, I just want to, I need at least one. You got at least one. one. Right. You got to earn that PhD. Exactly. <laughs> you can, and now you can let your parents listen to this, right? You have it. Exactly. Um, okay. So this one, let's see. Name the musical group that was formed in 1987. They currently consist of 12 members. They hold three Grammys, an Oscar, and serve as the house band for Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. Ah. Uh. The Roots. The Roots. The Roots. Um, so the first two members of the group were Questlove and Black Thought, where they met in high school. They went to the Philadelphia High School for Creative and Performing Arts. I believe that's where Boys to Men went as well. That's right. And they added members along the way. 
They have 14 studio albums. I actually, you know, when I was doing this research, I did not know that. Um, and their first album, Organics, was released in 1993. So we yep. were in high school. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> their most recent was in 2014. And some of the soundtracks they've appeared on were in Men in Black, The Wood, The Best Man, Blade Two, and the Hamilton mixtape. I mean, listen, I've loved The Roots for a really, really long time. Um, and I know you're a Philly boy. Are you a Roots fan? I'm a huge Roots fan. I mean... <laughs> Everything they do, every place they go, I try to support. You know, um, I love Amir and and Tariq or Black Thought and Questlove. Um, personally, as friends, you know, I think they're dope people, really sincerely dope people. Mm -hmm. um, but they're such great artists uh, with such longevity. You know, Organics was that album that people didn't really know about, but it, you know, that was back when they were the Square Roots, and people yeah. thought that you know, you know, they were this underground hip hop group that may pass. They had a buzz, but you know, people didn't know, right? And then. As as Illadelph, you know, Illadelph Half Life and uh, before and um, uh, oh, my my brain is freezing. But the one that had uh, Silent Treatment on it, yes. Um, Do you want more? Once those songs hit, you know, they got even more of a buzz. Do you want more? Thank you. That's what I was trying to think. Of. Do you want more? And then Illadelph Half Life, um, and by the time they got to Things Fall Apart, uh, with that beautiful cover and Erica Badu, you know, singing the hook on uh, You Got Me. And Jill, I mean not Jill, uh, and uh, Eve doing the, the the rap, even though she wasn't named, like mm -hmm. you know, you, it was like, oh, they they on to something, you know. And then they they got a little more mainstream buzz with some songs, um, you know, "Break You Off" and stuff like that, the Best Man soundtrack, um, as well. And like, I just love them. But what I love about them is how creative they are and how boundary pushing they are. Um, they both of them. Really, all of them. Though. Even even Malik B and, and Dice Raw and, and 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 you know James Poyser, all of them. You know Hub, who just passed away. Like um, I love all those dudes, man, because they're all so creative and gifted and and, and hard working. These dudes was doing three hundred uh, tour yes. dates a year. Yes, I mean when you talk about college shows and festivals and you name it, I mean they really. I think sowed the seeds. Like when people say they're Roots fans, it's like yeah, they earned those fans. You know, they were oh, doing everyone. Every single, you know, college campus across the United States, and then they were going to Europe. I mean, I really, I, I think that the album cover for Things Fall Apart mm. is when I, when I realized I like them more than the music. And I was like, these guys are actually really well-read and thoughtful in a way that I kind of knew it, but it made me go back and re-listen to their albums in a whole new way. Um, and then they've just expanded. And I, I always love, you know, and this is, I guess, with time and as we get older, you know, we've now known each other for quite some time, um, how, you know, let's just take Questlove. You know, he's gone into, like, the food world. And, like, you know, I have some of his his beautiful coffee table sort of food books to say nothing about that Oscar for Summer of Soul, where, yes. you know, I've, I wrote an op-ed asking him, and so, listen, next time you text him, text him and say, Chrissy Green wants you to, I, I really want him to create a website for all of our parents to upload their pictures from the 60s and the 70s mm. when they were wearing those afros and those mini skirts and they were listening to that music in real time because when i watched it with my friends uh, mom and aunt they started going through their phones and pulling out pictures of themselves like he wow. tapped into something that reminded them of that happiness even though it was, it was rough times politically we know that but i think questlove really did tap into the beauty of black people in that moment. The Panthers would have security and didn't expect a crowd like that. Despite what was going on around them. And I think we have to we have to tap into that now with all the madness that's going on around us.
Absolutely, man. The, the Summer of Soul was a great, uh, a great um, kind of story being told of culture and art and the backdrop of, of politics um, is there too. Um, and I, I loved it, you know, and I loved watching it and I loved uh, experiencing it. And I actually went, it was the only time I've been to a movie theater since the pandemic started. Uh, mm. I, was, I was like, I got to go to Harlem and watch this. There's only about four people in the theater. But I was like, this movie has to get watched. I, I wanted to experience it in a, in mm-hmm. a certain kind of way. Um, and it was worth it, man. It's so beautiful. And and their love um, of Black people and their, and their curation of content that shows us at our best. I mean, imagine being, you know, one of the best drummers of your generation and saying, you know what? Nah, I got to write. I got to open restaurants. I got to write books on food. I got to write a, an amazing memoir, Mo Meta Blues. I got to. I got to go, um, I got to direct a film, right? And imagine being, in my mind, one of the top five MCs of all time, Black Thought, right. and saying, you know what, I'm going to make plays. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to write plays. You know what right. I'm saying? Like, right. it's just like they, they're committed to doing um, art and stretching the boundaries in a way that inspires me every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I literally watch them and be like, yo, I need to do something else. If it, like, I got a million jobs. They got like five million jobs. And, and, and right. <laughs> Their job after the uh, after they worked all those years after they worked. I mean, I, this summer man, I was I was I was like they work every day five days a week at least doing Jimmy Fallon. They make albums, they produce, they do all this stuff. And it was like four, I think it was Fourth of July weekend. We were down at a uh, Dumbo House, and um, my partner and I we were at, we were at Dumbo House in Brooklyn. And who's DJing but Questlove? Like he walked in, and I was like, oh, he's here to kick it. Nope. Right. No, no. No. no, to say nothing of, you know, he's always DJing in Brooklyn. I mean, I think he also wants to have access to the community and he wants mm-hmm. the community to have access to him. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm y'all. Like, <laughs> I may be on television, I may make movies, but here we are. Okay, right. so we, we basically, the two of us should just have a podcast called We Love the Roots. And, and <laughs> right, exactly. <keep> that. <laughs> okay, you ready for number three? I think so. You're doing well. You're two for They get harder though. I already know I'm going to get at least two wrong. <laughs> Okay, this person is credited as the co-creator of the High Five, was standing in the on-deck circle when Hank Aaron broke the home run record, and is the first African-American manager to win 2,000 games. Who is he? Oh, I don't know this. Let me think. He was standing... Hmm. So he wasn't a manager when Hank... Okay, I see what you're saying. So I, I, if I were guessing, I would say Dusty Baker. That's right, brother. That's right. Dusty Baker. As a player, Dusty played 19 seasons. He was a two-time All-Star and won a World Series with the Dodgers. He was also the first manager to win division titles and make the playoffs with five different teams. And he's been the manager of the Houston Astros since 2020 and made his second trip to the World Series as manager in 2021. So that is Dusty Baker. Now, are you a baseball fan? I am. What confused me was I was thinking that he was a manager when Hank Aaron was. Gotcha. Was That's why I was like, who's that old to be doing that and still. I was like, I was <laughs> right. Like, still like, rocking it. Now. That old. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I, I am a baseball fan. Baseball was my first love, um, both watching it and playing it. And um, I wasn't that good, but I enjoyed it. And my dad, you know, was a. My dad was born in 1929. So, oh. you know, b- basketball wasn't a thing for him. Right. You know, like that was, I mean, he came to like basketball, but when he was growing up, you know, the NBA wasn't around yet. 
Right. As we're all learning from winning time. It was like in the 70s and 80s. They're barely right. holding on. Exactly. Exactly. My dad's older than the NBA. So like or was older. He passed away last year. So when we were growing up, we would watch the baseball game and we would sit on the porch and listen to the baseball game on the radio. So, mm-hmm. you know, my oldest memories of sport are sitting on the porch listening to pitch counts, you know, you know, with the Phillies with, with like Mike Schmidt in the 1980s. Wow. Um, well, you so, know what I'm always fascinated by? The number of black people who were into baseball, grew up listening to baseball, watching baseball, playing baseball. But it doesn't seem as though a lot of young black boys really played baseball the way they did, say, in our generation or even my father's generation. Very true. Um, and, it, you know, and everyone's like, well, there's some class components to it and it's expensive. And, you know, basketball obviously is taken over. But it is really... Um, sad to me because there's so many great players from the Negro Leagues who also integrated MLB, but it doesn't seem like young black boys necessarily are into baseball, say, the way you were as a kid. It's a couple of reasons for that, I think. I think, one, um, it's just baseball is not in our neighborhoods, you know, like mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, N- NBA, NFL are far more popular, um, far more visible. You know, people want to be LeBron. You know, who, who is the baseball player that somebody would want to be? Um, and for us, it was like Ken Griffey Jr., right? Yep, Ken Griffey Jr. I love Ken Griffey. I love Barry Bonds, too. I love Ricky Henderson. Um, you know, and we just don't have those kinds of role models at the same level anymore. But it's also, you know, that the, the, the game itself isn't in our neighborhoods anymore. I mean, how many baseball diamonds are there in right. in, in the hood? And baseball and, and how much is the MLB invested in our hood? Because it seems as though they've gone to the Caribbean and sort of Latin American countries as their their new way to invest in and repopulate exactly. the, the profession. That's exactly right. They'd rather go to DR and, 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 and mine talent there than to come to, you know, East New York or something. And, and, and it's unfortunate, but it's also about money. I mean, resources like baseball is an equipment sport. Like you got to buy cleats. You got to get back. You need baseball. If I want to play basketball, all I got to do is walk to any hood, any, a few blocks and somebody's going to be hooping. All you need is a hoop that's already up, right? So you just need a basketball, you know what I mean? Right. And so, and you don't need a whole bunch of people and all the things that are necessary to make baseball or hockey um, happen. Just as, you know, that are two, those are two sports that are kind of out of our way. And then baseball lost a lot of fans. You know, after the, the um, after baseball shut down, um, after the, the lockout, there was, this is when Michael Jordan, you know, uh, quit baseball as well. Um, it was very difficult to to get people back of, of all races back into the game. You know, there was a lot of energy in baseball when when Barry Bonds and before him, um, uh, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were smashing home runs, you know, out of the stadium and people looked to them. And then that kind of went away, you know, with all the steroid, you know, debates and controversy, which I still think is unfair to the players. And, and we ended up ultimately with a sport that that kind of like hockey where the died in the wool fans stayed, but a whole lot of folk just don't watch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's enough to keep the sport going and to be lucrative, but it's not enough to grow and expand the way the NBA is. Right. And it, I'd be curious to see in the next 10 to 15 years where baseball is, you know, especially in the American imagination, because we've seen, you know, a lot of folks, even though, you know, the blackening of basketball has, you know, had people clutching their pearls, folks are still tuning in. In a way, I mean, the three-point game of the NBA right now is enough to just make anyone interested in yeah. to see what these guys do. It's high scoring, right? I mean, people like scoring. That's what made baseball kind of have that renaissance was because people kept hitting home runs mm-hmm. and people kept mm-hmm. smashing the ball out of, out of the park. With Barry Bonds, 
you know, went from having 300 plus career home runs, to having 700 plus career home runs over a very short window because he just kept setting new records, setting new records, setting new records. And fans were attached to that. You know, people don't want to watch a, a baseball a baseball pitcher step off the mound five times. and They don't want to watch a batter call timeout three times and work right. a pitch count. That's not exciting to people, just like in basketball. Watching, you know, a, a strong defensive team might be, might excite me, but people want dunks and threes. Right. And, and I want to see Curry Steph Curry get this half court shot. Let's keep yep. pushing. Yep. Um, okay, so another podcast idea, Christy and Mark just talk about sports. <laughs> because I love you know, these ideas. I'm down with all of them. I'm down with all of them because you know what? Philly is such a sports town. You know, we grew up, Randall Cunningham was our first black quarterback. You know, we're coming off of Dr. J. There was Allen Iverson. Like, I just think that you know, to be a Philly sports fan is to have a, a really, you know, A, a frustrating life at some points in time. But we've sure. had some real iconic black superstars come through our town uh, and really excite us in, in various ways. That is absolutely true. Okay, you ready? Um, I, th I think so. You're doing so. really well. I'm, I'm just, you know... I'm Dusty excited. Baker had me tripped up, so I, 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 I at least pat or I don't know if I passed. At least I got a, a 60 so far. <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah. Right. The professor in you is like, okay, did I pass this class? Exactly. Okay. Number four, born in Thayer, Nebraska, this person invented ranch dressing around 1950. Who are they? I have no idea. So here we go. It's Steve Henson. He was just in the news not too long ago. He was originally a plumber, but he came up with the recipe when he worked in Anchorage, Alaska, and he moved to Southern California with his wife in 1954 and named his property Hidden Valley. And as the popularity grew over the years, Henson wow. sold it to Clorox, the Clorox company in 1972, for $8 million. And so he passed away in 2007. So in 2017, Hidden Valley Ranch products brought in $400 million. So when, when you're eating your ranch dressing <laughs> with your buffalo wings and your carrots and celery, that is Steve wow. Henson's invention. And I would I never know. eat ranch dressing, but I'm impressed. But, okay, so here was my question for you, because I was really afraid that I was going to get my black card pulled. I don't like ranch dressing. Oh, <laughs> I support no. Steve, but yeah, I don't I like ranch. I support the idea of it. I, right? I want everybody, now I may, I may even order, you know, because sometimes when you order food, you either have to get blue cheese or ranch. I don't eat either, yes. but I, I order the ranch just to, just to support the legacy of this black man. Right. Solidarity. Yes. It's like we are pro-black people. Yes. We will support. I do not like ranch dressing. I don't like anything like that on my, my hot wings. Um, but I do, you know, I'm always fascinated with this idea of black inventions. And I think it does kind of dovetail really interestingly on this like CRT debate of really trying to erase us from history in so many different ways. Because, you know, I think when we were in middle school and elementary school, you know, we learned usually not in school, but from a relative or church or wherever uh, about all the inventions that black people have made, you know, over time yes. that we just didn't know. And, you know, all the like the household items and, you know, the traffic light and, you know, all of these ways that black people have contributed to our society and these really robust life saving ways in a lot of in a lot of instances. And we've just never gotten the credit and the solidification of our true accomplishments uh, in this nation. That is absolutely true. I mean, I had no idea about this this brother, uh, Steve Henson, you said? Mm-hmm. Making ranch dressing or creating Hidden Valley or any of this stuff. Um, but you're right, it goes so much deeper, right? And it's not just that 
we miss out on random factoids. It's that there is a, a concerted effort to kind of uh, hide or at least not engage our history, our tradition, our, our, our experiences, you know. Um, and I think truth. it also goes in like the lack of wealth production, which, you know, I know you More talked true. about and written about extensively, but, you know, to not get the credit is also not to get the financial compensation always for exactly. the credit. And like, yes, Mr. Henson was compensated, but like $8 million is not the same as $450 million for a not. family or a community. Exactly, exactly. And I think about what it means to hold on to our own stuff and to continue to grow and produce it. And I don't know if he could have done that or what that would mean if he had, but but I'm I was struck by the number. I'm like like eight million dollars is a lot of money for that time period when you, you know when you adjust for inflation, it's, it's, it's a lot of money. Uh, he probably was fine for for the rest of his life, but you know he could have held on to something potentially that could have created intergenerational wealth for him and helped invest in in black communities more broadly. Mm-hmm. But you're right, we don't even know that. But we don't even know that. And and I also think about the young people who could be inspired potentially by him, not not just in terms of making money, because that's not my thing, but like being inspired to create, being inspired to like, to do things that we never even considered before. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm actually so glad you told me that. I'm mad I got it wrong, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited that, uh, that, um, that I learned this fact. And also this idea, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we have some solidarity here around not putting a ranch on chicken wings. I just, I just, I just, <laughs> It, it feels it just feels wrong to me. It feels wrong. But I also, you know, the whole point of this podcast, and I so appreciate you coming on, because it's not about making people feel bad about what we don't know, right? right. It's really to help us remember there's so much about Black history that we can still learn. Beyond MLK and Sojourner Truth and Harry Tubman and Frederick Douglass, no disrespect to those four amazing Americans. However, right. there are literally millions of Black people who have contributed to our, our world that we just don't know about, and we should, right? Because to not know Black history is to not know American history, it's to not know our history. And that goes for everyone listening to this podcast, whether you're Black or not. Um, okay, you're doing incredibly well. I think we should move on to number five. Uh-oh, okay. This is a big <laughs> one. In 2001... And we're academics, so I'm just going to give you a little clue. So in 2001, this person became the first African-American to hold the position of president of an Ivy League school. Who are they and what school was it? I was about to say it wrong, too. It's Ruth Simmons. Mm -hmm. And it is Brown University. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Simmons. So Ruth Simmons is from Houston, mm. just like Barbara Jordan, and served as Brown University's 18th president from 2001 through 2012. And prior to that, she was the ninth president of Smith College in 1995 and actually spent some time at Smith right after she left. And I tell you, you would have thought that Ruth Simmons was still there because the shadow of Ruth Simmons was so long. The faculty talked about this woman every day and the innovative changes she made and how she made faculty and students feel like they belonged in this institution in ways. And most recently, she's president of Prairie View A&M. So she goes from the Ivy League to an HBCU to use her talents, resources, and I'm sure her fundraising scrolls to help uplift Black communities. And so Ruth Simmons, for me in academia, has just been, you know, obviously a beacon. But, you know, both of us went to to Ivy's and we know that those places can be lonely and cold. And I can't imagine what it's like to be the first president. 
yeah. African American president of an Ivy League institution. It, it, it's rough, man. It's rough. I mean, I know she was at Princeton before she was at Brown. At one point, she was a, I think she's a provost there or, or a dean. And uh, I just, I've just heard the stories of, of of how consistently how innovative she was, how creative she was, how great her leadership was, her poise, her character, her you know all the things you'd want to hear. But you're right, being the only one is never easy in this kind of context. And, and she's been a trailblazer at all stretches. You know, she created an intellectual room uh, for, for all kinds of traditions and ideas. She's made faculty feel protected. She's made students feel safe and, and valued and welcomed. I mean, she's, she's extraordinary. And, and of all the things she's done, all the Ivy she's been at, all the places she's run, the thing, and you pointed to this already, but the thing that mattered to me the most was that when it was all said and done, she went to Prairie View. Mm-hmm. That she had the ability to go anywhere. anywhere. She also had the ability to go nowhere. She didn't need a job at that point. Yeah. I mean, she could just retire. I mean, retire. her, her no. legacy is set. You know, right. she can walk She can walk into this room tomorrow and she doesn't need to say or do anything. And we're like, this is Ruth Simmons. <laughs> exactly. But she said, there's a space for me here. There's something, an opportunity. There's a calling I have. And, and, and to say, you know what, I'm going to invest my time and my talent and, 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 on the fundraising, my treasure, you know, in black people and in a black institution. And she didn't have to, but she wanted to. It mattered to her. It was important to her that that happened. That to me said everything about who she was. Um, and, you know, I don't think every black person that needs to teach an HBCU, I think there's black people in lots of institutions and we need, they, they deserve to have faculty too, you know. Right. I, I don't think every, I don't think black students who go to Fordham shouldn't have a black professor, you know, or or, mm-hmm. or a temple or what have you. But I do think there's some value in in making a concerted effort in an attempt to be at an HBCU and to educate us and to lead us. And 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 she she took it. And and I have such admiration and love for her. But but that for me was like that sent it to another level. Right. Well, you know, I always tell people. I went to an HWCU, right? Mm-hmm. The same way HBCUs are set, historically black colleges and universities are set up for the production of black knowledge. I've always gone to universities that were set up specifically for the production of white knowledge. So, you know, and I don't call them PWIs, uh, predominantly white institutions. I call them HWCUs because they were, they're historically white, right? Um, but I do think that it is important for black students at HWCUs to see black professors. But I think equally, it's important for white students to see uh, black professors. And I think that that was part of Ruth Simmons' uh, legacy at so many of these elite white institutions to to understand, you know, most of my students have never interacted with a black person in a position of power. You know, they've had babysitters or nannies. That's they've it. had people in a service <laughs> industry, but they've never, you know, reported to a black person. They've never had a black teacher or professor. So I do think it's equally as important for not just my black students to see me in the front of the classroom, but for white students to see people who look like us in front of a classroom as well. And I, I feel like Ruth Simmons put in her time doing that and then was like, okay, well, we can bring it on home. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't begrudge anyone who goes from HWCUs to HBCUs and back and forth um, because I think that there's a space and a need for all of us. Yeah. I, I agree hundred percent. Okay. Well, listen, I am very impressed. Um, we got four out of five. I think, you know, an 80 is a respectable, solid, solid. And we're going to think, every time you see ranch dressing, you're going to think about Steve Henson, right? And I hope that it sparks something in you. But before I let you go, we got some quick bonus questions. Okay. Okay? I'm ready. So. I'm playing with house money now. I feel good. Yeah, you know, listen, this this is all gravy right now. Better Philly classic, dreams and nightmares or summertime? Ooh. 
That is a... Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I am... Ooh. I'm going to say summertime. And, okay. And, and I'm going to say that only because summertime has proven to be a classic over 30 years. Whereas okay. Dreams and Nightmares, we can't say yet. Right? I think it we will might have be. We it, might it, have to revisit. Yeah, I mean, they damn near played in elementary schools right now at, at the start of school. Adjust the face and let the alpine blast. Pop in my CD and let me run around and put your car on cruise and lay back because it's summertime. But, like, we'll see what happens. Okay. Spades or dominoes? Spades. Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes or Boys to Men? Hmm. I won't go with Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes only because you get the double kind of Teddy Pendergrass piece in there, right? So you get like multiple Philly legends that way. That's right. My little niece loves herself some Teddy P. Martin or Fresh Prince? Fresh Prince. I, I, Martin doesn't hold up to me. Like when you watch Martin now, um, it's, it's okay. I mean, there's some good episodes. The Varnell Hill episode, the Najee Ramba episode. You know, there's a few. But the Biggie Fresh episode. Prince, <laughs> right, exactly. But Fresh Prince, the Biggie episode is a classic, classic. But... But, like, Fresh Prince holds up episode to episode as a sitcom. It's actually still mm-hmm. funny. Now, we're going to have to talk about this offline because I actually went back and rewatched Martin during lockdown. And I think that he is teetering on a comedic genius with all the different characters he played. So we might have to debate that. Because, like, when I watch Shanene, I don't see anybody but Shanene. I don't see Martin Lawrence at all. I'll give you that. I think Martin is a comedic genius and a great physical comedian. I just, I don't think... I don't. I think Martin holds up. Martin Lawrence. I don't know if the show holds up. Like when I watch the episodes all the way through, I just don't be cracking up no more. And then yeah. there's also the, the colorism with Pam and, and Gina. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, there's some problem. There are definitely some problematic pieces. But you know, yeah. someone told me a long time ago, um, who's a child of immigrants. She said that her mother liked Martin. I was like, why is that? And she said because my mom doesn't speak English and she can follow the show completely without knowing anything that they're saying because it's so flamboyantly over the top in, in their acting. So I don't know. Well, that's, that's interesting that's think about. Okay, here we go. We got two more. Okay. Better food, funeral repast chicken or baby shower meatballs? Funeral repast chicken, for sure. That's right. That's right. In the basement of that, that church. Oh, my God. <laughs> with, the, with those sisters. Yep. I don't want to <laughs> okay, know how last to one. It. <laughs> Right, exactly. We don't need to know what's in it. All we need to know is that styrofoam plate is holding it right. together. <laughs> Just give me some hot sauce, keep the ranch away, and we good. We good. <laughs> Last one, Wawa or 7-Eleven? Wawa. Of course. Of Wawa. Course. You get your beverage, you can get a pretzel, you can get deli meat, you can get a sandwich. Wawa is the truth. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Oh, goodness. Okay, well, we got to link up in Philly so we can have a day at Black at Uncle Bobby's bookstore, yes. and then we can hit up Wawa afterwards. Um Mark Lamont Hill, I just want to thank you so much for joining me. And I want to thank you all for listening to The Blackest Questions. The show is produced by Cameron Blackwell, Justin Sloan, and Richard White. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. 